grace or hyper grace. You know, it's interesting when you study the religions of the world, you could say that all religions, I mean Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, Christianity, have many things in common. For example, all religions teach about morality. What is morally correct or morally wrong? All religions uh, warn against sin. They may define it a little bit differently, but they warn against sin. All religions uh, teach their adherents uh, to pursue a godly life. They may differ in how they define godliness, but the principle is there. But there is one thing that no religion in the world has. Grace. Grace. Uh, it doesn't exist except in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is unique to the gospel. No Religion has merits. You are doing things to attain a certain spiritual stature. The gospel is the gospel of the grace of Jesus Christ. You know, the word grace is not defined in the Bible. We have a definition. It is the undeserved, unearned, unmerited favor of God through Christ. Pretty good definition. I'm not saying it includes everything, but it it's, it's, gets us on the way. Uh, but uh, Jesus didn't even teach about grace in two or three step sermons because Jesus didn't come primarily as a grace teacher. He came to be grace. One thing is to teach grace. Jesus is grace. He is grace personified. It says in John 1:17, the law was given through Moses. So it was given. It was something that was handed over like a book. But grace and truth, this unmerited favor and this truth about who God really is, it came through Jesus Christ. Many times you could actually substitute the word grace for Jesus. He says, by grace are you saved? I can say, by Jesus you are saved. <laughs> Sin shall not have dominion over you because you're not under the religious system, but under, the, under grace. Sin shall not have dominion over you because you're not under the religious system, but under Jesus Christ. So many times you could substitute. You see, grace is not a doctrine. It's a person. So personally, I don't like to call myself a grace preacher. I'm a Jesus Christ preacher. Grace is also not one of uh, God's many blessings. Grace is that which includes all the blessings of God are wrapped up in God's grace. Religion says, clean yourself up and then come and present yourself to God. God's grace says, come as you are. Because your heavenly father is full of hugs and kisses as you come, even smelling like a pig, you can come and receive God's love and grace. You know, many spiritual awakenings in history, especially the ones who uh, touched society at large, some awakenings may have been more internal to just the church, the believers, but those who, who really touched society, Peter, well, all of them started with a revelation, a fresh insight about God's grace. And then as the generations came, it became diluted and tradition came in. And I know in my own life, 
I was always a Jesus Christ preacher. I was known for that, but some 20, a little bit more than 20 years ago, I received, and I believe we are in the wave of that, a fresh revelation of God's grace. And I began to see that I also had mixed, as so many preachers do in so many churches, they have a mixed grace message, means that they have some, everybody believes in God's grace, but they mixed other things in, and they try to say we do that for various reasons, and I discovered I had done that. And so sometimes that lead to, well, it always leads to a dilution. It means, in some cases, people besmirch, castigate, accuse those who uh, preach Jesus Christ and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, for example, you may have heard certain expressions, uh, greasy grace. People might say, well, I believe in the grace of God. I don't believe in greasy grace. They're trying to say something nasty with that, aren't they? They're actually trying to paint a picture of, of a pole where you are climbing up to God and it's greasy, so you keep slipping back. And certainly if the way to God is to climb up on a pole, I would want to have sturdy steps, wouldn't you? I wouldn't want to oil or grease the pole. But the whole premise of that is wrong because the way to God is for not, not for you to climb up to anything. You don't climb up to God. The gospel is that God climbed down. He became Emmanuel, God with us. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, some people talk about cheap grace, which is also, you know, I, don't, I believe in God's grace, but I don't want any cheap grace. That's a very strange expression because it infers that God's grace is somehow a transaction. And most will say, well, Jesus paid most of it, but, you know, I'm also paying because, and they are inferring we should pay a lot. In other words, you can't be too cheap. That means you should pay a lot for God's grace. But there's a problem. If you pay, it's not grace anymore. So is grace, the grace of God, cheap? Not to God. It costs God everything. It costs Jesus everything. But to you and me, it's not cheap. Because we don't pay nothing for it. It's free. So when someone infers that you receive God's grace on the cheap. They're really saying to you, I have no clue what the grace of God is because they are inferring that you should have paid more, maybe more in dedication, more in sacrifice, more in tears, more in repentance, more in groveling. They're inferring that you didn't pay enough. While by its very nature, Grace is totally free. You pay nothing. The moment you try to pay something, it's not, it's not grace anymore. So, as some have said, well, God's grace, it promotes licentiousness or sin. And the reality is the only thing that can stop sin in our lives is the grace of God. God's grace stops sin. But sin does not stop God's grace. Because no matter how much you sin, God's grace is still flowing towards you. So all your failures, your mistakes, doesn't stop or impede God's grace. 
But once God's grace comes to you and you receive it, it stops sin. And then we have people say, well, I believe in grace, but you know, I'm not hyper grace. You know, when we call somebody hyper, you say, don't be so hyper. You know, the word hyper means you're like over the top. You're overexcited. It's too much. Don't get all hyped up, right? And so they would say, well, you know, God's grace is good, but don't get over much excited about it. Don't, don't get too much of it, which uh, leads to the question, how can we get too much of what Jesus did through his death and resurrection? Is there like a level that too much Jesus is too much? Hype, are you hype? You know, it's interesting thing. Hyper is actually a word that comes from the Greek language and the New Testament was written in Greek. So the word hyper is in the Bible. It's not translated hyper, but that, that root word is there. Let me read it to you. And it's in the connection with God's grace. It says like this in Romans 5.20, where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Hyper eperisusen. So, so what does it mean? Where, where sin abounded, God's grace hyperabounded. It's actually in the Bible. Another place in Ephesians 2 7, it says that, uh, what does it say there? It says that he might show the exceeding riches of his grace. Hyper balloon. Sounds like a balloon with the air went out of it. So, so what it's really saying, that, that he might show the, ex, the, the hyper riches, the, the over the top, the too much riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So there you have the word hyper. 1 Timothy 1.14. The grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant. It was hyper elo. So you could say the grace of our Lord was hyper abundant. So my question is, what do you want? Grace or hyper grace? Well, I say take them both. And there's a phrase here that Jesus used that is the same phrase. He says it's a phrase much more. It says in Matthew 7, 11, if you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more, how much more, are you hearing me? How much more will your father who is in heaven give good things? See, that's the word hybrid. It's too much. It's over the top. It says in John 1, 16, of his fullness, we have all received and grace for grace. Jesus on top of Jesus. Unmerited favor on top of unmerited favor. It says of his fullness, some of us have received, a few of us have received. Those who prayed really hard, those who fasted for seven days, the dedicated ones. No, it says we have all. Does that include you? Does that include your neighbor? Does that include the person that you're a little bit upset with right now? Oh, that was nice that you said yes there. We have all received, all of us, 
That person that you think is, well, they're not really showing the Christ-like attitude, but they have received of his fullness. Jesus upon Jesus, grace upon grace. I mean, this is over the top. Ephesians 3.18, the width and the length and the depth and the height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. It doesn't use the word hyper there, but it sure sounds hyped up. It's over the top. It passes knowledge. It's beyond anything you could figure out with your brain. It's so wide, so high, so deep. It's just over the top. Ephesians 3.20, to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly about all we ask or think according to the power that works in us. That's another over-the-top verse. I mean, way beyond anything that you have asked God in prayer, anything that you could think of asking God. He is over the top. So again, my topic, grace or hyper-grace, I say, take your pick. Now, just because I, I'm such a nice person, I don't want to, uh, you know, kind of, you know, put people's face into it. But technically speaking, I certainly am a hyper grace person. I believe in the exceeding abundant grace. <laughs> but I'm not going to go around and announce that. I guess this is going out on some media right now. But other than that, I'm not going to put that on my calling card, hyper, pray, hyper grace preacher. But if you want to get technical about it, see some people, before they start uh, filing their accusations, they should study what the Bible actually says. The word hyper is in the Bible. And so when you teach God's grace in this super abundant way, this over the top, well, it's too much. It's much more than you could ever ask and think. Then some people get nervous. The apostle Paul, he experienced this. He says in Romans 8, he says like this, well, some people are slandering me, he says. They are slandering me saying, and they are claiming that I say that it's okay to go ahead and just sin as much as you can because God's grace is so great, ill covered. He says they are saying that to slander me. I don't know whether they wanted to slander or, or whether they just slandered not knowing better, uh, but the slander comes with this. So I want to deal with uh, three slanderous statements, uh, three myths, if you wish. Here is a slanderous statement or a myth, and it's like this. If we have God's grace, sin doesn't matter anymore. Let me say, oh, sin doesn't matter because we have God's grace. Or they say, oh, those people who teach God's grace, you know, sin doesn't matter. Well, let's state right up front that God does not record remember, or hold your sins against you. I say it again, God doesn't record, he doesn't remember, and he does not hold your sins against you. That's, that's pretty nice, isn't it? That's over the top, isn't it? But does that mean that sin doesn't matter? Well, when Jesus went to the cross and took our sins and suffered in such an unspeakable way, I guess that's testimony enough that sin matters. That sin is not a small thing to God. Jesus died for our sins. 
He took our sins in his own body on the tree that we being uh, dead to sin should live to righteousness. So I guess sin really mattered as we see when Jesus died on the cross. But you say, well, that was then. What, what about now? Well, let's, let, you can say, does God really care if we sin? Does God care about sins? Very much. Let me read it to you from the Bible, Ephesians 4, verse 30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Let all bitterness, wrath, wrath is like a sustained, a vengeful anger. Let all sustained, vengeful anger. Anger is more like a, a flare-up and clamoring. Clamoring means being noisy. Always talking about how hard you are done by. Always talking about other people, how they have not treated you right. Very quiet here now. So let's just backtrack. Like all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, being all noisy about it, and evil speaking, speaking badly, let it be put away from you with all malice. Malice is uh, to wish other people harm. If you have a sense that I, you know, I wish they'd be in a car accident. Oh, that served them right. That's, it says, let that put, be put away from you, and it says it grieves the Holy Spirit. So, so, so why is the Holy Spirit grieved by these things? It's because like, oh, God says, I'm so disappointed in you. Oh, Bertha, I thought you could do better. Is that why? No. Is it because God is petty and he says, I'm going to get revenge now. I'm going to get even with you. I made some rules and you better stick to them and you disrespecting me. Is that why? No. We see very clearly here what grieves the Holy Spirit, it's all relational sins. It doesn't say, don't grieve the Holy Spirit by shaking your fist at God. No, it's nothing about God. It's about relational. It's about quarreling, backbiting, evil speaking, being noisy about people who you think have done you wrong. It grieves the Holy Spirit. Why? Because God loves his people. It's not for God to protect his honor and his integrity and you have now disrespected me and I'm going to punish you. It's because God loves every one of us. Point yourself in the chest and say, God loves me. And then point at your neighbor and says, God loves my neighbor just as much. God doesn't want harm to come. So God's love for us is unaffected by our choices, even our sinful choices. God's love is unaffected by those. But our choices still affect us. Our sins, relational sins as these described, they matter to God because we matter to God. You are important to God. Your neighbor is important to God. The other person that you meet on the street is important to God. Jesus is not a sheriff in the sky who is waiting to arrest you and handcuff you and just make life miserable because you broke a rule. He is your comforter. He is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. So it says, as I alluded to earlier, Hebrews 10, 17, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. So God doesn't hold your sins against you. He, Jesus put them away. 
But that doesn't mean that sins don't matter to God. God is grieved. The Holy Spirit is grieved by how we treat others. That is so, but there's hope in it. When we do things that are wrong, the Holy Spirit is always there. Even though the Holy Spirit is grieved, the Holy Spirit is there pointing us to Jesus. Saying, run to Jesus. Okay, if you fell in this area, if you fail, run back to Jesus. So even though the Holy Spirit is grieved by that slander, by that you've been making so much noise about how badly you've been treated, it grieves the Holy Spirit. But even in that, the Holy Spirit says, run to Jesus. He is your righteousness. There's hope for you. Run to Jesus. Run to Jesus. Run to Jesus. And so sin is so destructive that only God's grace can stop it. Amen. All right. So let me get, take, give you another slander here now. Another slander. A, a myth. Some people say, oh, if we have God's grace, there's no need for repentance. Or some would say in an accusatory way, oh, those people who believe in God's grace, they don't believe in repentance. Now, there is a religious concept of repentance, which means that you have to tell everybody and announce how sorry you are if you have some tears and cry and scream with it. That's like a bonus. It shows how sincere you are. But uh, I say to you that uh, the, the meaning of the word repentance, unfortunately, in our Bible, it comes from the Latin translation rather than from the Greek because the Greek is very clear. It is a change of mind. Some, some languages it actually is translated change your mind. The word is metanoia, which means to change one's mind after. After you have heard some new information. After you have heard of Jesus Christ, what he has done, you change your mind. Uh, you go in a different direction. Now, people, preachers with a mixed message, Christians with a mixed grace, uh, mixed, uh, notice I'm introducing this phrase, mixed grace. What I mean with that is there are people who believe in God's grace, but they mix it with other things. So they would be quick to say, I believe in God's grace, but mixed grace preachers and Christians would typically say, oh, we need to hear more preaching about repentance. Because they think by merely repeating the word and explaining it, over and over again say, I call you to repentance, that that will cause people to repent. But according to, the, <laughs> according to the Bible, according to the gospel, preaching repentance doesn't bring repentance. I said preaching repentance doesn't motivate people to repent. God's kindness does. Romans chapter 2 says, do you despise the riches of his goodness, the forbearance, forbearance means God giving you extra time. Maybe you were late on your payment for the rent and they gave you extra time. That means the landlord had forbearance. Do you despise God's forbearance and long suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? So I ask, do you despise that? Do you despise that we preach the goodness of God? that we preach that God gives you extra time, that we say little nice statements like God is the God of the second chance and the third chance. Do you despise that? W would you think it was better if Pastor Nathan and I would just beat you up here every Sunday morning, give you a tongue lashing and tell you how bad you are? W would, that, would that make us more radical? 
Would you be able to tell you first, oh, our pastor is so radical. He gives us a whipping every Sunday. Would that, would that do it for you? Do you despise? Do you despise the riches of God's goodness? That God gives people a second chance? You think that's too easy, too soft? Maybe he gave you a second chance. Well, I, you know, I'm I just thinking of others. They shouldn't get another chance. But I want to get all my chances. Do you despise that? Do you look down at that? Would you like some preacher strutting around, maybe in skinny jeans, telling his Bible, you need to get more radical. I tell you, people aren't radical. Would that, would that really do it for you? You say, oh, would that, would that really? Think, oh, our church is so radical. Oh, our pastor, he's all the way. He, he's just telling it like it is. Would that do it for you? Huh? Would that be the kind of thing? Do you despise the riches of God's goodness? Is that too soft? Is it too sweet of a message? I'm not, I'm asking you questions. I don't know if you're expecting me to, I should have an answer. The, the long suffering, the patience of God, is that, is that too nice? Don't you know it is the goodness of God that leads you to repentance. You see, repentance, it's not something you do about your sin. Repentance is not something that you do about your sin. Repentance is a change of heart. It's, it's, it's what it's, it's our receiving and accepting of God's kindness. So if you want more repentance, preach more grace. If you want more repentance, preach the abundant, the exceeding abundant grace of God so that people would change their mind after hearing of the exceeding abundance of God. Come on, if you're going to do it, do it. You're going to do it. And so then they will stop trusting in their own good works uh, and they will trust in Jesus. That's why it's in Hebrews 6, it's called repentance from dead works. All your dead effort, change your mind from that. So in fact, though we don't use the word all that much, that's pretty well all we do in this church. We call people to repentance. I say, change your mind. All of you, who listened to that television preacher told you there were seven things you had to do to get your blessing. Repent of listening to that preacher. All of you who bought those books that told you how, how you had so many demons even though Jesus came and lived in you, burn those books. Repent of ever having bought those books. Yeah, repent of that. Turn from it. All you who thought you'd get your breakthrough if you only would fast in the month of January for 21 days. You're compensating. You're saying that Jesus is not enough. What about somebody with diabetes who can't fast? Oh, I guess they're out of luck. Repent of dead works and come to Jesus. All right. Now I have the third, a third slander here. This is going to be good. A myth. They say those who embrace God's grace, they become lazy. Oh. Those who embrace God's grace, you know, it's just an excuse to be lazy and unfaithful. Well, I guess the Apostle Paul didn't get that memo in his inbox because the Apostle Paul said the following, 1 Corinthians 15, 10, by the grace of God, I am what I am and his grace towards me was not in vain. 
His grace towards me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly. I worked more than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. So the apostle Paul says something completely opposite of the slanderers. He says, the key to my intensity, to my energy, is the grace of God. The grace of God is in me, making me more energetic. See, some people would make the accusation, they would say it like this. Listen to this. They would say, well, I caution about, I caution about too much grace because people will start thinking they don't have to do anything for God anymore. Exactly. That is what we're telling you. Actually, that's not a myth. That's the truth. When you discover God's grace, you discover that you don't have to do anything for God anymore. Hallelujah. I'm so glad I have to do nothing for God. Did you hear me? If you understand anything about God's grace, it means you've been set free from doing anything for God. You don't have to worship for God. You don't have to pray for God. You don't have to give for God. You don't have to evangelize. You don't have to join a church program for God. You have to do nothing for God. That is the message. Oh, some of you are getting nervous. Well, that's the message. That's the message. See, God never wanted you to do anything for him. He never wanted you to do anything for him. He said, I don't call you servants. See, you've been thinking, I'm working for God. I'm working for God. Well, go ahead. Maybe you got yourself exhausted. God didn't notice. He doesn't care. He doesn't want you to work for him. All God ever wanted was for you to work with him. I said with him. I'm not working for God. I'm working with God. I'm not working for God, kind of building up my points, you know, kind of getting some points for the day I die. I'm going to be ready there. No, I'm working with God. And all that work you did for God, all that work you did, you know, to impress God, to get your blessing, it amounted to nothing. Now, we have a, we have a hardworking church. We have a church like the Apostle Paul. We work hard. But I'm not working for God. Well, you know, after everything Jesus did for us, shouldn't we pay him back? See, that's a ludicrous thought. You think that you're working for Jesus to pay back what he did. Well, if you could pay back by your effort, then it wouldn't be grace anymore, would it? You just ruined the whole thing. No, and so many people, they have worked so hard for God, I'm working for God, and they get nothing out of it except exhaustion. But when we discover that we rest in Jesus and God works with us and we work with God, it is no longer I who work, uh, who live, but Christ lives in me. He says, I labor. It's not I. It is me laboring, but yet not I. It's the grace of God that lives in me. Hallelujah. And so you can try to work for God and you will have no fruit. The fruit comes when you rest in him and he bears fruit through you. You're not a cattle. You're not a cow that needs to be prodded with an electric shock into the barn. You know how the cowboys do it. They prod the cattle into the barn and say, well, I need that. I need that. Bless God. I need to be prodded. Oh, Pastor Prod. No, no. I heard about somebody. I don't know who it was about a year ago. Somebody says, I'm leaving the church. I love the preaching. I love the people. 
but the pastor isn't tough enough on me. I'm going to go back to my old church. They were tougher. The pastor told us every night between 10 and 11, we had to pray for a whole hour. I'm going back to that church, but I love it, this church, but I'm going back there because uh, I'm so bad. I need to be prodded like a cow. Okay, if you don't belong to the first assembly of the cows, leave our church then and go to a place where they'll prod you because we're not going back. We're not putting you into slavery. So if you were hoping for us to come up with some rules uh, to kind of to prod you, to shock you into good behavior, you're in the wrong church. This is a church of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Oh yeah, we're not going to change. We're not going to bring you into slavery just because you want slavery. Some people want slavery, you know. So I need that. Christ in me is not enough. I need a preacher who checks up on me every week. Did you do your prayer? Did you evangelize 50 homes on your street this week? He said, I need that. Really? Well, join the cattle church. We have human beings here who have been filled with Jesus. And we're not going to make you slaves. You're free. You don't have to work for God, but you have the privilege. You have the awesome joy and privilege to work with the Lord Jesus Christ and hear him prompt you. That's what I'm doing. See, I'm, we are involved, let me talk about myself. I'm involved in world evangelism. We have an extremely ambitious plan. We are looking to buy property for one of our Bible schools. We're looking to do more campaigns in the next 12 months than I've ever done in my whole life because I'm still so young. But when I get old, maybe I'll change. But since I'm so young still, I'm planning the most ambitious program. Uh, Pastor Nathan here, we are planning. We are things for 2024. We already started pastoring the neighborhood and everything. But we're not doing this because we feel like, oh, we got to deliver for Jesus. We got to deliver here. We got a quota. We got a quota of things we have to do. Oh boy, we got to do something for God. No. People say, oh, Pastor Peter, you would never, you would never retire, would you? Why wouldn't I? I can retire today if I want to. I don't accept any pressure from you. Well, you're such a man of God. You would never retire. Why, why wouldn't I? Well, I, I, I won't, but <laughs> it's not because of the reason you think. It's not because I'm trying to impress you. It's not because I'm trying to impress our partners. It's not because I'm trying to impress God. No, I have the privilege of working with Jesus. Yabba dabba do, hallelujah. That is the most awesome thing, and I'm going for it. I'm going for it. You know, the, uh, the, the second most read book in the world after the Bible for many, for over a century was uh, Pilgrim's Programs uh, by John Bunyan. And he wrote a little poem. He said like this, Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. Yeah. The law, the religion says, do, do, run, run for God. But it doesn't give you hand or feet. Then comes the gospel. It says you can fly. It's better than, I'd rather fly than run. And it gives you wings. Ooh, don't think about the Red Bull commercial. You know, that was a, um, a court, a court ruled that unconstitutional. They couldn't say it gives you wings. But I say the gospel gives me wings. I'm not trying to work for the Lord. I have the joy of working with the Lord. I'm not repaying Jesus. Like, oh, Jesus, I owe you now. Do you think Jesus went on the cross and arose again to put you in debt? 
I mean, that's a pathetic thought. Of course not. But we have the privilege of working with him. Okay. We are celebrating the first Sunday of Advent. You say, what's this got to do with Advent? Well, it's got something to do with it. You know, see, see Christmas is easy to celebrate because it's Jesus becoming, God becoming one with man, Emmanuel. Same with Easter. He died on the cross. These are living truths right now. But Advent, we have made it into waiting. And strictly speaking, we are not waiting. I said, we're not waiting. Some people, they talk in church. Oh, this is the time of waiting for the Lord to come. We're not, we can't talk like that. Hope is a good way to describe it. Because we always need hope. Because Jesus has already come. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. That's what the Advent was all about. They were waiting for him to come. But when he came, he was different than they thought how he should be. He came full of grace and truth. It was unexpected. They didn't expect Jesus to come to be full of grace. Just forgiving and helping and lifting seemingly scandalously and indiscriminately. They didn't come and expect Jesus to come full of truth about who God is because they already thought they knew who God is and Jesus shattered all their beliefs about who God is. They didn't expect him to be like that. So you know what it says when he came on the first advent? He says he was despised and rejected. To be despised means to be held in contempt rejected, discarded, cast aside. That's, that's Jesus. Discard, you know, shove him into the ditch. But who, who were the ones who had contempt for Jesus? Was it the other carpenters? Did they go on strike when Jesus came? What about the fishermen? Did they go on strike and say, oh, we can't stand Jesus? I mean, who despised him? Was it the thieves and the prostitutes? No, they heard him gladly. The ones who despised Jesus were the ones who thought they knew God because they expected that when he comes, the one we've been waiting for, he will be dignified. He will carry himself as a religious elitist. He will take it to another level. He, he, but he wasn't like that. And Jesus' many teachings, I'll give you a parable in closing here that many haven't understood what it was about. Uh, there was a man who tried to justify himself. He tried to make himself look good. Have you ever met people like that? Maybe I've done it. Maybe you've done it. Maybe we both make ourselves look good sometimes. So there was a man like that. So Jesus said, there was a man traveling to Jericho and he fell among robbers. He was beaten up. You know, that's a picture of you and I. That man lying wounded on the Jericho road, that's humanity. We've been beaten up by religion, which Jesus in John 10, 10 calls a robber. He calls religion a robber. Robs you of your joy. Robs you of your assurance that you're loved. Robs you of your assurance that God is for you. And so there he was lying, wounded and bleeding, beaten by robbers. And then it says, then there came a priest. Can you see the priest coming down there? Here comes the priest, the one who makes the sacrifices in the temple. And when he sees the one wounded, he crosses the street. 
I frankly understand why. Because, you know, according to the religious law, you couldn't get too close to a guy like that. Because then you have to go through the whole uh, ritual uh, purification and you have to bathe yourself, I don't know, seven days. And I mean, it's kind of a nuisance, you know. So, so it's better to cross the street and say, well, I don't want to get close because I'm a busy man. I don't have time to, to be there. Then came the Levi, the picture of the law, of the religious rules. And that one crosses the street as well. Because you can understand it was just uh, inconvenient. Here's a man bleeding, probably some badly hurt person. And I wouldn't want to have to, in case my clothes get soiled and he's not pure. And, you know, it's a lot of work. Really, a religion is a lot of work. Poke your neighbor and say, religion is a lot of work. And then it says, then came a Samaritan. You know who the Samaritan is a picture of? It's not a picture of you. Read the story. Jesus is the Samaritan. He's the Samaritan. He says, he comes walking. And then he crosses the road, but in the opposite direction. And he pours in the oil and the wine. I don't know if you call that grace or hyper grace or over the top or too much. Call it whatever you wish. This is Jesus, the great, great one. He is loving. He's restoring him. He is healing him. He is restoring the wounded. You can try to besmirch it. You can try to castigate it. But this is the revelation of God. This is who God is. He is a great restorer. He is over the top. He is exceeding abundant. He is much more than we could ask or think. He is the great God. And you say, well, who are we in the story? Well, if anything, you and I, we are the innkeepers. After Jesus has done the saving business, he gives some money to the innkeeper and says, you can take care of him. That's about where you and I come in. I know you thought you were the good Samaritan. Don't think too highly of yourself. You are, we're innkeepers. We have received blessing. We have received something from God and it's for our own needs, of course, but it's also to help others. Praise God. That's why we believe in helping others and doing outreach. We are the innkeepers. We have received something from the great Samaritan, Jesus Christ, the one who nobody thought that he was like he should have been, but he was the way God is. And, and so we are the innkeepers. And we, we are stewards of that. Oh, that's God's grace. Yeah. So I'm a worker for the Lord, I guess. But not really. I'm a worker with the Lord. Because working for God is so heavy. How could I ever do that? So we're gladly going forward. We're going forward giving. Reaching out. Blessing. Prospering. With Jesus, not for Jesus. He works in us both to will and to do his good pleasure. Amen. Amen. Well, God is good. I think I'm done preaching now. I hope you got something out of that. And uh, let's just bow our heads right now. Oh, it fills me with such joy. One of the reasons I love so much what I do and I have such ambitious plans is because of this terrific message that I'm not the good Samaritan, you're not the good Samaritan, that's Jesus. He pours in the oil and the wine. He, he, he or the picture of the Holy Spirit. He gives people his spirit. He gives people new life. He reaches out to the wounded and he welcomes everyone. And I'm just there helping out a little bit, you know, being there because I received something from God. I'm there helping out. I'm there standing with Jesus. And I want to ask you today, if you say, Pastor Peter, I want to receive.
the forgiveness of every sin. I want to receive this new life. I open myself to receive it. I want to repent. I want to change my mind about how these things happen. And I come to Jesus as I am. I'm not going to try to clean myself up. I'm not going to put my best foot forward. I come just as I am. I, I, I just come and receive his love. I receive new life. Maybe you're burdened with some shame. Maybe you feel some guilt. Maybe there's some heaviness. There's some darkness in your life, in a moment I'm going to pray with you. But I want you to give me a sign. All those who say, Peter, I want to be included in this prayer. I want to receive this new life from Jesus. I want to receive the forgiveness of sin. I'm going to ask you to lift your hand. Get ready in just a moment. I'm going to ask you to give me a signal. I want to be included. If that's you, all of you, would you lift your hand? Those who say, yes, pray for me. I want to be included. God bless you over here. God bless you. Lift your hand way up high. Let me see where you are. God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. God bless you over here. God bless you. God bless you down over here. Wonderful, wonderful. God bless you. God bless you. Let's everybody stand up right now. Everybody stand right now. Thank you, Lord. I give you praise. I thank you, Lord. Let's just lift our hands and pray. There's maybe six or seven friends who have lifted their hands here today. If there was one, it would be worth it for all of us to pray. And sometimes there are many, many. But whatever, even one person is worth it. Uh, you're worth more than the wealth of the world. So would we just lift our hands and would you say, Heavenly Father, let's say it strong. Heavenly Father, thank you for your great love. I see more and more of your goodness of your kindness, of your love for me. And I receive it now. I confess with my mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. Lord Jesus, live in me. I receive you now. Thank you for your life. Thank you for your love. Thank you for you in me. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's give a big hand. Let's just praise God right now. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus.